welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in once again. Episode 87, you know, it seems like it's going by so fast. I feel like we just started and we're really getting close to episode 100. So that'll be a nice little milestone and a nice little gold star for myself. Um, of course, I usually make my pitch for Counterpunch, but uh, today let's dispense with the formalities because we are limited on time and I have such an excellent guest on the line, somebody who I'm sure many of you probably know if you're regular followers of Counterpunch, you've seen his work plenty. Uh, Ramsey Baroud, he's an internationally syndicated columnist, media consultant. He is an author and founder of PalestineChronicle.com. His most recent book, uh, My Father Was a Freedom Fighter, Gaza's Untold Story. You can find all of his work at the website RamseyBaroud.net. Ramsey Baroud, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for having me, Eric. Um, so I want to begin with the most uh, current issue that I think is really important to understand about what's happening in Palestine, the ongoing resistance against occupation, apartheid, etc. And this is this ongoing hunger strike. Pro- people have probably seen stories about it, but maybe they don't understand the full context, the full background. So explain a little bit about this hunger strike that's uh, ongoing and why this came about. Um, Thank you. Yes, Um, I think that there are really more than one dimension to this hunger strike in order for us to understand it in proper context. Uh, Number one, it's a hunger strike that um, where a group of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, about 1500 of them, uh, led by Marwan Barwuti, who is really the most popular of all Palestinian leaders. He is the most popular within the ruling group Fatah. Uh, but he's kind of really more or less is kind of on the margins of the mainstream. Uh, and he's largely disliked, really, by um, the the upper echelons of the Fatah movement in Ramallah. Um, that's why he's in prison. Um, and um, and uh, um, other uh, members of other groups, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and other groups, and the socialists as well, have joined in. Uh, whether in uh, uh, committed to the hunger strike or in solidarity with the hunger strikers. Um, the number of the hunger strikers um, is going up. Um, there are a total of 6,500 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jail right now, treated very badly. Uh, most of them are held uh, in Israel itself, um, so-called Israel proper, in violations of uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention that says that you cannot deport or uh, uh, keep um, hostage any prisoner from an occupied territory in in the occupying powers um, territory. So they are fighting for a very just cause. They want to be treated better. They need to be, they want to spend more time with their families um, who are experiencing great deal of restrictions uh, and denied access to their sons and daughters in Israeli jails. But this is this is really the dimension of, of the hunger strike that we, you know, if mainstream media would, you know, care enough to report on it, this might be mentioned in, 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 in passing. But the other dimension to the hunger strike, which I think in a way it's more important, is, is the larger context of the Palestinian situation. In, in some way, all Palestinians really are prisoners. Uh, if you are living in the West Bank, uh, trapped behind checkpoints, the apartheid wall, um, not allowed to leave or come back without an Israeli military permit, which does not happen uh, so easily 
if you are in Gaza, you are under a complete siege. It's the world's largest open-air prison. There's no question about it. Palestinians in the West Bank are divided between various areas named Area A, B, and C. Those in Area C, which is the majority of the West Bank, about 60% or so of the total size of the West Bank, are almost entirely trapped entrapped by um, by the Israelis. They are under the control of the Israeli military. Those who are somewhat lucky enough to be in Area A, for example, I mean, imagine, I know this might actually sound confusing, and I want it to be confusing to your listener, because this is what Palestinians actually do experience on a daily basis. There are numerous checkpoints and numerous zones and numerous military areas. Um, so it, ultimately, all Palestinians are feeling prisoner. So when these prisoners went on their hunger strike, April 17th, I believe, the vast majority of Palestinians everywhere in Palestine felt that, you know, that, that these prisoners are not presenting their own causes and their own issues. They are really symbolic of the larger Palestinian prison. And this is why prisoners are perhaps the most unifying factor in Palestinian life. Uh, they bring all Palestinians together, regardless of their um, ideology, politics, geography, and all of this, because they really speak to the Palestinian condition as we see it today. Absolutely. Now, one one thing that strikes me in, in reading about some of the accounts and, and understanding how this is all going, uh, you know, happening it reminds me, of course, of the uh, some of the famous hunger strikes we know historically. Uh, certainly, Bobby Sands and the Irish Freedom Fighters, uh, a number of others, and African Liberation Movement, etc. Um, we've seen this happen before, and I think that part of the issue with regard to the media and not covering this is sort of the fear that uh, the perception is that in this uh, context of a hunger strike, the Palestinians are clearly and unmistakably the victims. So the media constantly equating the Israelis and the Palestinians as if there's some kind of an equivalence, that formula doesn't really apply when it comes to prisoners on a hunger strike. Uh, not at all. Of course, it doesn't apply. But, you know, I would say, you know, if the media decides to be kind enough that they would actually perceive Palestinians as, as equal in, in, in this unequal equation, um, many in, in Western media, American media, mainstream media in particular, really has absolutely no um, regards of, of the viewpoint of the Palestinians um, at all. Uh, in fact, Marwan Barghouti is mentioned repeatedly um, uh, whenever he is mentioned. The context of, of his name is not, you know, the popular Palestinian leader who has a great deal of legitimacy amongst his people because of the sacrifices and all of this. No, absolutely not. It's a man who has been accused of Israel, um, you know, by Israel of committing terrorist acts. So immediately they remove any sort of sympathy or, I mean, if this is the leader, if this is the main uh, organizer of the hunger strike and he has been deemed terrorist, from the very get-go in any article or newscast or anything, then, then the whole cause is really illegitimate. And this is what Israel has succeeded in doing. I, know, um, I don't know if you've seen Marwan's article on April 17th in the New York Times in which he explains why, why they are going on to this hunger strike. And it was strange that the New York Times published it, but the response that happens from Zionists in the United States and their supporters and, and many in mainstream media 
you know, attacking the New York Times for daring legitimize the viewpoint of Marwan Barghouti. Um, and, and the outcome was the try to actually further destroy any legitimacy or any, you know, um, sensibility of the Palestinian cause altogether. This is the idea. They, they try to demolish the person. They try to completely remove any, um, any sort of sympathy that you might have by immediately creating these labels of terrorism and all of this. No understanding of the context whatsoever. This is what we are really struggling with in, in, in mainstream media. We would love to actually have an an, an equal amount of time, an equal amount of space in American newspapers. Um, let them provide their viewpoint and let us provide our po- viewpoint equally. The outcome would be for the average American reader, they will understand that this is terrible what's happening to Palestinians, that nobody would accept to live in this situation, that you should not be a prisoner in your own land, that you should be have you, you should have the right to be free and, and to live in a just society and to have access to education and schools and hospitals and all of this. Um, Palestinians have none of this. And the vast majority of Americans don't actually understand this. They are under the impression that Palestinians are the aggressors. How can you be an aggressor and you are the occupied party? in a conflict. And this is what the media has really done such a good job uh, with. It just really, they kind of rewrote rewrote the history of this conflict, and they are still rewriting it after 70 years. That's exactly right. Now, you, you talked a little bit about the symbolic meaning of the hunger strike, and I want to ask a little bit about symbolism, because uh, to what extent is it also symbolic that this is taking place at this time of the year, at the time of the year that Israelis celebrate so-called Independence Day, that Palestinians mark the Nakba, that this is all happening with the in the background, this hunger strike ongoing. So speak a little bit to the symbolism of the timing. Yes, absolutely. The Nakba is the Palestinian catastrophe. It has taken place between the years 1947-1948 when nearly one million Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their historic Palestinian homeland. Israel did not exist prior to 1948. There was nothing but Palestine as a homeland for the Palestinians. Um, At one point in history, the Israelis... um, did not exist as a nation. They were Jewish settlers. They came and they ethnically cleansed um, uh, that population, along with the destruction of nearly 530 villages and towns. Palestinians were made homeless, made uh, destitute, made uh, refugee in many parts of the world. So every year, uh, May 15th, for us is is Nakba Day. It's uh, that's when Israel was established, um, and uh, established on the ruins of uh, of our homeland. And this is why it's a very important date. What's so important about the symbolism of the strike and that particular date is that for about 25 years or so since the whole so-called peace process started, there has been attempt also by elitist Palestinian politicians and leaderships to also rewrite their own history. They wanted to make to make it as of 1948 was not important. That the Nakba never took place. That the issue of the refugees is not pressing. And the issues that we need to worry about is that only of Israeli occupation of the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. Now, this is very, very important because for about 25 years, there has been this in, you know, conflict that's happening in all aspects of Palestinian societies, including among intellectuals. We've been arguing that in order for you to resolve this conflict justly, 
you have to look at 1948. You have to examine the roots of the conflict, the Nakba, the refugees. You have to address all of these issues fairly unjustly in order for us to bring this drama to an end. Um, but that hasn't been the case. Everyone talks about the Israeli occupation uh, of 1967 as if nothing has ever happened prior to that. Um, by emphasizing the Nakba in their hunger strike, and, and all aspects really of Palestinian resistance right now is pushing that date back, is saying the peace process has failed. Oslo was a joke to begin with. And every attempt at rewriting our history has also failed. And now we need to reorient our history, resituate it where it should have been in the very first place. And that's the Nakba 70 years ago. I wonder how much of this uh, also has to do with any changing uh, perceptions in terms of the political uh, calculus. And specifically what I mean is the ascendance of Donald Trump. Donald Trump as president of the U.S. is obviously and clearly an escalation, uh, an escalation in terms of the relations with Israel, an escalation in terms of Israel feeling a sort of impunity, even more impunity than it has felt previously. Previously, So um, I wonder if also we could see this as to some degree a response to an, an increasing belligerence from Israel, increasing in terms of settlements, increasing in terms of the rhetoric and so forth. Is there any uh, way of viewing this as a response to what we've seen the last six months? That's, that's an excellent point, Eric. And I wrote about this personally where I argued that now we can officially say that the peace process is dead. I mean, we've been saying that practically for all intents and purposes, there is no peace process, Oslo is dead. Yes, we made that argument, but I think officially, now with the rise of Donald Trump and that kind of erratic policy that is really centered in a very pro-Israel agenda with David Friedman and, and, and the whole rethinking, even the, you know, the reference to the West Bank is no longer West Bank by some of these official like Friedman, you know, they refer to it by its biblical term, the Yehuda and Samaria and so forth. I think we are experiencing the end of the peace process now at an official level. And I think for Palestinians also, it means that if the peace process is dead and it's over officially, then then there is really no limits to our discourse. Why are we limiting ourselves with, you know, what we have been told by our leaders, you know, just for the sake of peace, accept the very little, you know, 20 percent of historic Palestine um, and, and everything is going to be OK. Well, ultimately, we did not even get that very little. Um, so, so really, there is nothing for Palestinians to lose. And I think this is why there is a movement right now among Palestinian intellectuals, but also clearly manifested in the public, uh, among the public as well, that this whole era, with all of its political frames of reference, the Oslo went to the Paris Protocol, the um, Jericho Gaza first, all of this nonsense that we've been hearing about all of these years in the last two and a half decades, since really since... Uh, the, the, the Madrid talks in 1991, none of this is valid. It's all, it's all over. Um, you, nobody talks about it anymore. I, I, I dare anyone to look into a Palestinian newspaper right now and find anyone making an argument that we need to respect, for example, the Oslo Accords 1 or 2. There's no such thing anymore. So this is really, really important. I think kind of Trump made that point very clear to the rest of us. You know, it just it's, it's over. Don't bother with that. But there is another um, issue that I think is really important of why this thinking is now changing, finally. 
And that is, it's very clear that, you know, the attempt at, at dividing Palestinians into, you know, issues to be discussed in the first um, leg of the negotiations and issues to be left to the final status of the negotiations, all of this has harmed our national identity. It has divided us as people. Um, but when you think of it, Palestinians who are living in Israel as Israeli citizens, treated as third, fourth, or fifth class citizens, Palestinians who are, you know, the, the, the Bedouins in the Nakab, they are treated so very well, so very badly. Palestinians in diaspora, in refugee camps, in Gaza, in the West Bank, ultimately, our fate has been more or less the same. We are suffering in different contexts, in, in, in different situations. Um, and we are, you know, that suffering happens because they are Palestinians. And the ones who's imposing that, 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 that regret, you know, oppression on these Palestinians are the very uh, Israeli entity. It has always been that case. So, you know, kind of buying into, you know what, let's not worry about the Palestinians in South Lebanon. They are not important. Let's not worry about Jerusalem. We'll discuss this in the final, you know, status negotiations. Oh, Palestinians in Israel are just fine. You know, they, they are treated fairly well compared to others. That old archaic thinking is no longer valid. There is this new impetus in the Palestinian national identity where a Palestinian in Gaza really do feel strong, strong connection to a Palestinian living in Nazareth or, or, or in the Nakab, a Palestinian Bedouin in the Nakab. And this is why the Nakba is becoming more and more important because all of these groups, regardless of where they are, behind whichever wall, behind trap, in, in whichever refugee camp, Ultimately, their their suffering, their pain, their tragedy started on that specific day. It started during the Nakba. It started in 1948. So it's kind of whether it's intentional or not intentional, there is this, you know, organic, natural drive back to the very basics. What unifies Palestinians, aside from their culture and, and religions and common history, is also a common tragedy. And I think the last six months really made it so very clear to Palestinians that this old thinking should be over and we need to um, create and, you know, kind of push our national identity back and to reframe our struggle in a different historical context. I think that's very well said. Now, one of the other things that I want to touch on here, and this is, uh, I guess you could say, an objection I have or something that I, I always kind of sticks in my mind when uh, engaging in discourse about Palestine, and that is that too often I think that there's a tendency to remove Palestine from any broader context, any regional context, any geopolitical or strategic context, and I think that's a mistake because I think that Palestine is very much a, a central uh, part of everything that goes on in the region. So I wanted to get your analysis, if you could, of the effect of uh, regional dynamics on the politics inside of Palestine for instance, uh, what's happened in Egypt and the rise of Sisi and the impact that has had on politics in Gaza, uh, perhaps also the ongoing war in Syria, the way that that's been a divisive issue in a lot of ways. Can you speak a little bit to the political dynamics as a result of some of these regional issues? Yes, of course. Um, I do think that the regional dynamics obviously very um, well connected to the, the, the situation in Palestine. And I don't think one can be understood fully without the other. Um, if we remember that in, in, in Madrid, during the Madrid talk in, talks in 1991, when Israel did not um, 
want the Palestinian team to be independently negotiating on its own as, as, a, as a delegation of its own. They wanted Palestinians to be uh, perhaps part of the Jordanian negotiations team. Not because the, the Israelis believe that Palestinians really should be part of a larger Arab component, but simply because they did not believe that Palestinians existed and therefore they, they don't have a claim to nationhood and sovereignty. They have to be um, part of some other entity in the region. This is why Palestinians were and remain very sensitive about the issue of not seeing as their own, um, you know, as, as their own uh, entity and, and their own um, um, uh, kind of political representation. Um, this has been going on for such a long time. Palestinians were, for a while, Palestinian politics was divided between Jordan and Egypt, for example. Uh, the Egyptians spoke on behalf of Palestinians. Palestinians were standing in the background. Jordanians spoke on their behalf. Other countries made claims to speak. Now, this is not really, um, I mean, I'm really not a big fan of this, um, of this whole notion that really Arabs are fighting against Israel as one entity. Every country had its own political interests and manipulated the Palestinians to achieve these political interests. Um, now, what happened uh, since Oslo, Palestinians were left alone. They're, you know, at the end of the day, well, you negotiate, you achieve peace. It kind of gave our other Arab countries the chance to advance its interests with Israel and, and the United States, of course. Um, and this has been a big issue for Palestinians because they have been really kind of left alone, more or less, throughout all of this. The, 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 the Arab nation, the Arab component, the, the, in fact, the word Arab-Israeli conflict was removed all that together and the discourse changed since Oslo to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict because the Arabs were doing their own thing. The Arab Spring kind of changed that dynamics. It kind of really brought a sense of Arabness to the conflict. Tunisians were raising Palestinian flags. Egyptians were attacking the Israeli embassy uh, in 2011 and 12, saying to the ambassador, you know, you, you can't possibly be here as long as the Palestinians are oppressed. So we began seeing this, this you know, kind of return to the, to the Arab identity of the Palestinian conflict. Of course, it did not last very long. We know what happened. The, the story had a very tragic ending. The Arab Spring was crushed, foreign interventions, and so forth and so on. And at the end, Palestine was all, altogether neglected. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, really maintained cordial relations with Sisi and others, just really to either for his own personal interest, for the interest of his party, or to make sure that his rivals in Hamas, Hamas in Gaza, you know, are kept at bay. So the Palestinians were using um, as much as possible that existing um, um, Arab conflict in order for them to maintain personal and party interests and party agendas. And this is where we are right now. This is why Palestine has has been somewhat lost in this in this mess, um, and and there's been attempts at reviving it. I think we started with the with the um, the prisoner strike. I think the prisoner strikes has a strike is a is a very important attempt at revitalizing um, the the struggle in Palestine. Um, and um, many in the Arab media, I'm in the Middle East right now, and really it's not getting not just in mainstream media in the U.S. and the West. But here in the Arab world, they are not getting the kind of attention that they would have gotten, for example, if it were not for the situation 
in 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 uh, Syria or or in Iraq, um, they are neglected uh, more or less. Um, their issue is being seen as as unimportant compared to other issues. And this is very significant because without the support that comes from the Arabs, whether political support or emotional you know, um, support, Palestine on its own will not be able to withstand the kind of pressure that is imposed on them by Zionists and by their American supporters. So really, there, there has been a great deal of struggle to reassert uh, the Palestinian cause as an essentially Arab cause as a result of all of these conflicts. One of the things that's always been fascinating to me about the about the the entire conflict is the fact that Israel has one well has many advantages, but one distinct advantage I think that Israel has is that to a large extent and certainly over the last twenty years there's been more or less unanimity on the on the Israeli side in terms of what they want. They want the destruction of the Palestinians as a people. They want to uh, consolidate uh, Israel not just as a nation but as a Jewish state. Uh, and they want to defend the settlements and defend the ongoing expansion. So there is a sort of unanimity on the part of the Israelis. And I think one of the weaknesses on the Palestinian side is that there hasn't been that same kind of unanimity, that there are these distinctly divergent interests and the lack of uh, unity of vision and of uh, political approach, I think that's been one of the tremendous uh, shortcomings on the Palestinian side. I wonder your analysis of that, and is there anything that is changing that dynamic? Yes, Um, I I do not disagree with you at all. But I think that there is the kind the political context that we have to see here is not comparing um, Palestinians as an occupied, oppressed, divided, you know, and and mistreated nation uh, with so very little tools to fight in it, with which to fight uh, compared to Israel, a powerful, victorious, triumphant, uh, military powerful, and uh, politically supported and validated by the greatest military power in the world today, the United States. I think the comparison then would which should have been um, or should be moved to some other context. For example, the anti-colonial uh, struggles uh, in throughout uh, the 20th century. Absolutely. Um, the Algerian, the Algerian struggle, for example. I mean, we know that millions of Algerians were actually killed by the French colonialists, but we know that hundreds of thousands of Algerians were actually killed by fellow Algerians as well, um, because because occupation dislocates the psychology the collective psychology of a nation uh it 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 tries to defeat it in every possible uh way it humiliates it it doesn't and and i think france fanon has this marvelous book the richard of the earth speaks of the algerian experience at length um really you 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 replace the word algeria with palestine france with with israel you'll find yourself almost reading an exact replica of that history. The same thing happened in South Africa uh, during the anti-apartheid struggle. When people are oppressed and weakened and and marginalized, um, you will have conflict. Um, The conflict will exist. Palestine is really by no means an exception. Um, And I think that the the conflict between the various parties in Palestine has been... um, not just engineered by Israel, but it would have happened anyway, because when people um, are subjected to this extreme amount of violence and humiliation and and really hopelessness, naturally you are going to have that kind of 
of, of mindset that where people don't see eye to eye on a great deal of things because of the degree of desperation. But add to this these other factors, the fact that the Arabs have manipulated Palestine since the very, very beginning for their own geopolitical purposes, the fact that Israel has invested so much time and resources to ensure the division of the Palestinians without creating physical divisions or, or in engineering political divisions. Uh, the fact that the U.S., like, for example, when Hamas and Fatah were, were about to reach a political agreement in Mecca uh, during the Bush administration, Bush W. Uh, w. Bush administration, Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State at the time, made it very, very clear, no money for Palestinians if you actually achieve that reconciliation. We will not support you, Fatah, if you would speak with the so-called terrorists in Hamas. Fatah, you know, uh, backed down as a result of this, uh, whether whether it's that decision is, 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 of course, I strongly disagree with it. But the fact is they thought about it from a practical point of view. People will not get paid. People will not be, uh, uh, the, the government cannot be sustained. So they back down. So there has been a great deal of investment in ensuring that Palestinians are divided, um, which is sad and tragic. And I agree with you. I don't, I don't think there is any problem to actually say you've got to get, your act together under any circumstance because you are being targeted for really genocide. I mean, what happens in Gaza and elsewhere, there's a form of slow genocide going on. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes political circumstances can be much greater than even a will of a nation to unite. The hope is that sooner or later, Palestinians will find a way to create that formula. It happened in the past. It's not unprecedented. The 1987 Intifada, for example, was, was a point of unity for Palestinians. The second Intifada, also we experienced that kind of unity. In the past, we experienced that as well. The prisoners, I mean, think about it. The prisoners are united. There is no Hamas and Fatah and such among the prisoners. Um, one of the calls that Marwan Barghouti made out of prison uh, in a letter that was leaked uh, a couple of days ago uh, was for Palestinians to unite politically because the prisoners are united. If the prisoners in smaller prisons felt the need and the urgency to unite against their, their jail, why shouldn't Palestinians elsewhere? Indeed. Um, I know we're just about out of time, but I just want to ask one final question, returning as to where we began this conversation uh, with the hunger strike. And that has to do with the uh, the broader context of uh, resistance and specifically that the hunger strike comes at a time when we have seen in in many ways the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement reaching a, a you know, a fever pitch, something that has ver become very much mainstream, something that is certainly uh, being addressed by the powers that be in Israel that have made a point of trying to use pressure and leverage in every way they can to block BDS and to block the development of this movement. So can you speak a little bit to how the hunger strike really fits into this broader context of where we are now in terms of resistance? That's right. I think BDS has been an incredibly successful movement at a time that we really needed that sort kind of success uh, at a time that um, that there was this um, almost acceptance 
to the status quo, the status quo being uh, an permanent oppressive Israeli occupation, uh, queasling, you know, uh, Palestinian leadership in Ramallah that is, you know, just basically trying to keep things the way they are because they are also benefiting from the status quo. Uh, Palestinians suffering permanently in Gaza, this kind of permanent misery, but manageable uh, industry as well. The occupation was becoming a manageable occupation. The settlements, uh, the illegal settlements were economically profitable and so forth. And then BDS kind of comes out almost of nowhere in the sense that most grassroots movements in Palestine really starts uh, and flourishes in Palestine. BDS did start in Palestine, but it flourished globally. And that's what makes it dangerous for Israel, because it really, it, it, it's impossible to contain. You can't imprison it. You can't subjugate it to, you know, arbitrary divisions between various areas. You can't build an apartheid wall around BDS. It's an idea. It's not an organization in the centralized sense that you go after the leader and the and, and his assistants and his secretary and and then you're done. We're talking about civil, uh, uh, you know, um, civil society movements um, the world over. Every year, whenever there is apartheid week uh, in March, the number of cities that join that apartheid week grow tremendously. Um, so it's like trying to put out a massive fire, but the fire is actually, the more you try to put it out, it grows uh, in, 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 and it expands. And the thing is, for Israelis, in the, the, in the old days, most of the times you used to ignore this kind of solidarity because they thought if they, if they do something about it, they, get, they actually help but get more attention. But now they can't ignore it anymore. They are holding one conference after the other. They are talking about how BDS is delegitimizing. Well, of course, it's delegitimizing the Israeli occupation. That's the whole idea. Yeah. We are trying to, to delegitimize an apartheid regime. What's wrong with that? Um, but, but of course, it's like, you know, just a couple of days ago, uh, the largest union in, uh, in Norway called for a blanket boycott of everything Israel. Not, not, you know, and this is huge. This is at the time that they are saying, oh, BDS is weakening, BDS is losing grip, BDS is failing. And then you, you have such massive piece of news like this, and it happens every single day. Now, civil disobedience in Palestine can be a powerful weapon. It can be a powerful weapon because we know it happened in the past. It happened as far as 1936 during the Palestinian strike 12 years before Israel was even established. It happened repeatedly throughout history. It happened throughout the Palestinian, the first Palestinian uprising, the second uprising. It happens all the time. But we need it to happen at a, at a collective level and we need a leadership that is actually able to push and sustain such such civil disobedience. This is why characters like Marwan Barghouti are very, very important because he is not scared of making this call and he is not scared of championing this call. Ultimately, he has nothing to lose. He's, he's, he's a, in a dungeon somewhere and he's on, on a hunger strike. The struggle has been getting the, the, the very comfortable with the occupation, Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, the VIP cardholders. Um, you know, they, they can't possibly champion that kind of struggle. This is why there has to be a very fundamental change in the Palestinian leadership. We can't lead 
uh, and sustain a popular revolt in Palestine, mass civil disobedience with a leadership that is willing to sit and make business with the enemy. It just doesn't, historically, this has never um, happened before, and it will not happen in the case of the Palestinians. But a scenario in which civil disobedience in Palestine, led by true revolutionary uh, uh, fighters like Marwan Barghouti and many others throughout uh, the Palestinian territories, but also of oppressed Palestinians in Israel, coupled with a massive global and growing BDS movement, they will feed on each other. It will be a situation that Israel will find itself really incapable of sustaining. I mean, in, in, incapable of fighting off. It's just, it. it uh, th- this is, I think, would be a very, very important step uh, in the right direction for Palestinians. Last last question, and this is something, so I think it's somewhat difficult to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, I'm wondering about uh, the future, the future of the resistance movement, because I totally agree with you in the sense that this is this is an, absolutely an anti-colonial movement to be seen in the grand uh, historical narrative of anti-colonial movements. But one, one complication is the fact that unlike other anti-colonial movements, uh, you're not necessarily going to replace uh, you know a colonial authority with an indigenous one rather the idea is the creation of something entirely new and that is obviously one of the demands that many have made including you know things like the right of return a mixed uh, secular state and so forth so what I want to what I want to ask is is there a an increasing unity of vision of what a future settlement would actually look like? Because for a long time there was this mythology about the two-state solution. Increasingly that seems to be going uh, away. Is there a growing uh, consensus within the pro-Palestine community of what the future would look like? And then secondly, what steps would need to be taken to get there? Uh, because, of course, there are changing dynamics. Dynamics, including the changing dynamics of uh, the Jewish people inside the United States, who have historically provided such support for Israel, increasingly uh, younger Jewish Americans rejecting some of the policies that Israel has pursued. So can you speak a little bit to the future and how you envision a potential settlement uh, evolving? Um, absolutely. I think um, I think this is a process. Um, you know, it, it's it's really. I think this is really interesting, Eric, in the sense that, it, it, you know, a, a process sometimes is just. We need to understand, or rather, redefine our understanding of this conflict. When we say two states, one state, seventeen states, whatever, the reality on the ground is telling us something entirely different. It is saying that there are two nations, uh, uh, living in one space. One is trapped behind walls and checkpoints and, and, and living in an apartheid system, and the other is not. Um, we don't need to go too far in trying to imagine this impossible future. A lot of people would you know, come and say, you speak of one state, you couldn't even achieve the seemingly easier option. How can you, you know, I, I remember an, an, an Israeli, you know, so-called peace activist approached me regarding this and he said it's like someone wants to you know climb a small mountain and says uh, and discovers that i don't have the capability to climb this small mountain therefore i need to climb everest um 
for him, it sounded completely irrational. For us, it doesn't, because we are all living in this space. There are Palestinians living in Israel. These are the indigenous Palestinians, the indigenous people of that land, nearly two million of them, specifically 1.7 million. There are Palestinians living in the, um, there are Israelis living in the West Bank, half a million of them. There are 300,000 or so Israeli Jews living in in Jerusalem, occupied Jerusalem. So in reality, we're all living there. We're all sharing the air, the water, the, the space. It's just one of us is governed by a whole different set of rules than the other. So this is why I feel like the new approach has to keep that in mind. I think we need to remove, move away from this whole idea of finding solutions as if we are talking about two equally, equally, uh, or two equal parties living, you know, fighting over something. We are all living together. We can't exist without, they can't exist without us. We can't exist without being in our own land. The fact that the, their water, third of Israeli water, comes from West Bank aquifers. I mean, how do you divide the water that comes from aquifer? They take most of the land for sure, and we take very little of it. So ultimately, what we need to be talking about is a rights-based struggle. We are struggling for rights. We are struggling for equality. We are struggling for political representation. We are struggling for the freedom to move, to go to our schools, hospitals, and, and, and work. We are struggling for to have safety to have the right to be safe in our own homes. We are struggling so that our homes are not demolished and our land is not illegally uh, appropriated. Once you achieve these things, then you are removing all the apartheid laws that exist and, that, and, 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 and more of them. Uh, every other week, there's a new apartheid law that is enacted by the Israeli Knesset. Once you remove these things, then we can actually think about the possibility uh, of, or not even think about the possibility, but rather we will find ourselves practically living as equal people in the same place. Whatever political formula that we could achieve as a result of this that is workable and that would sustain a more just political system, then let it be. As opposed to, you know, dividing a cake before even getting there, one state, two states. That, for me, that doesn't matter at this point a great deal. Because we've been through this... this um, uh, road many many times in the past and we just we we come up with ideas we discuss the ideas we agree we disagree we move on with our lives and nobody even you know began practically implementing anything of this nature just to give you a quick example eric if you have any time um I have been doing a lot of research on on Palestinian uh, on you know the people's history of Palestine. I have a new book that should be coming out uh, in in couple of months about the subject. When I talk to people, they don't think in terms of solutions. They don't t think in terms of yeah one state two states what's good what's they don't think of these things. This is something that intellectuals busy th themselves with, and they usually busy themselves with these things somewhere else conferences in Chicago and London and, and that sort of thing. Palestinians on the ground are thinking for their immediate rights, their rights to move, to go to the hospital, to be treated better. Really, if you, if, if you think about this from an actual Palestinian perspective as the people on the ground, they don't busy themselves worrying about the technicalities of 
you know, what what political plat- platform would have to exist in, for, in order for me to achieve my rights. I need my rights and I will fight for these rights at any price and I will continue to fight until the end of time. And And this is what I really think the future then ought to look like. The checkpoints would have to be removed. The walls would have to be demolished. Um, the settlements, uh, you know, for Jews-only roads, Jews-only settlements, this has to be a concept that does not exist in the 21st century. Once you really confront these issues on their own, you will find yourself in a situation where we can indeed achieve that desired uh, coexistence uh, in that land. Very well said. We're uh, so much more to discuss, but we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, of course, if you're a regular uh, Counterpunch follower, then you, of course, know Ramsey's work, but I encourage you to follow all of the stuff that he's putting out there. It's always uh, top-notch. Again, Ramsey Baroud, uh, internationally syndicated columnist, author and, and founder of PalestineChronicle.com, RamseyBaroud.net. Get the book My Father Was a Freedom Fighter, Gaza's Untold Story, and uh, the book that you just uh, previewed for us that's coming out really soon. Ramsey Baroud, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for having me, Eric, and all the best with the show. Thank you so much, and thank you listeners. As always, I'll chat with you again real soon.